to episode four of For All Time. My name is Don Johnson. It is Wednesday, January 5th at 1.01 p.m. Um, and uh, let's see. Let's get started with the program right away. I uh, hope you enjoyed that musical introduction. All right. Hot and Ready pumps up the pepperoni. This is in the uh, Wednesday, January 5th, 2022, USA Today. Little Caesars Classics price will rise slightly. By Susan Selaski of the Detroit Free Press, which is very important because that is where the Little Caesars World Headquarters is located, as previously mentioned. Nearly 25 years after its first after it first launched, Little Caesars is upping the price and adding more pepperoni to its classic $5 pepperoni and cheese hot and ready large pizza. The large pizza, built on being ready and waiting with no pre-ordering necessary for customers to zip in and grab, will now cost $5.55 nationwide. Prices for the hot and ready have already varied by market since said Little Caesars spokeswoman Annie McGraw in some markets the price increase hit weeks ago. The $5.55 cost is a nationwide promotional cost. After the rollout promotion, prices will again vary by market, according to McGraw. But there is also a change to the chain's flagship product itself. Little Caesars, according to to a news release, says it's hot and ready will be improved with 33% more pepperoni. Change is good when it comes to giving giving customers more of what they love, and we're changing our iconic hot and ready capital typed, classic pizza, adding 33% more savory, meaty pepperoni, still at the country's most affordable price, end quote, said Jeff Klein, chief marketing officer at Little Caesars in a news release. Little Caesars' iconic hot and ready has a long history. The pizza promotion made its debut in 1997. In 2004, hot and ready launched nationwide. Little Caesars was noted in 2019 as one of 10 brands with the most value by the nation's restaurant news. In a 2013 free press study, 
David Scrivano, now the president and CEO of Little Caesar Enterprises, talked about the pizza company's success as well as how the franchise will make a profit selling a $5 pizza. You have to have a great pizza and sell a lot of them, Scrivano said. You need a lot of people coming in to buy so we can keep our overhead low. Ed Gleick, Little Caesar's chief innovation officer, said in an email to the free press that the innovations such as its conveyor pizza oven in 1977 and its pizza portal a few years ago allow the chain to operate more efficiently. Little Caesar's has built its brand on affordability, convenience, and quality, which keeps customers coming back to us time and time again, Gleick wrote. This brings us the stability and high customer counts necessary to keep our extreme value sustainable. We are happy we can give customers so much at what remains the nation's lowest price. In terms of national brands, nowhere can you get a lower-priced pizza for carryout or delivery. As we add 33% more pepperoni to the Hot and Ready Classic, we are so proud to continue to bring the best value in America to folks looking to feed their families at an affordable price, end quote. Headquartered in Detroit, Little Caesars is the third largest pizza chain in the world. The chain has stores in 50 states, 27 countries, and territories. So that's up with Little C's. Little C's um, toss them the keys because $5.55, I think, is still a great price for a pizza, as we have perhaps previously discussed. It's food. That's good. Um, here's something that I saw that reminded me quite a bit of, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I'm going to read this right now. Um, there is this restaurant that I used to go to that, um, had dried persimmon on the menu there every once in a while when it was seasonal. And I just want to read a little bit about it because um, it's pretty cool. And this is by Tehal Rao in the uh, this week's New York Times magazine. If you're very lucky in Los Angeles, you have a big gnarled persimmon tree just within reach, full of fat orange fruit in the fall. I don't have this, but I have a friend who does. Another kind of luck, and her family generously gives away their fruit all season. Some persimmons are native to North America, but the ones I covet this time of year are not. The Hachia varietal grows all over Southern California, but it's native to China and prized there as well as in Korea and Japan. Unripe Hachia persimmons are particularly beautiful, almost heart-shaped on thick twigs with their little rounded collars, glossy orange skins, and bright flesh the color of sunshine filtering through your closed eyelids. But for all that, they're not so good to eat, at least not right away. Their juice is so astringent, so tannic, so like your very first taste of wine, that your tongue pulls away involuntarily. You can wait and let them ripen until the flesh gets drippy and almost translucent, or you can dry them. When the fruit is dried, it loses all of its initial prettiness and turns small and dark, so deeply wrinkled that it's practically ridged, covered all over in a suspicious-looking ash of sugar. That's when it becomes truly delicious, transformed like a piece of charcuterie. This takes a few weeks if the fruit is on the small side, and the weather is sunny and dry, and a bit longer if it isn't. The first time I made hoshigaki, the Japanese dry persimmons that are massaged every day or so to even out their shape and moisture and to soften the fibers inside, was at the cooking instructor Sonoko Sakai's house home in the Highland Park. 
part of town. Standing around a table in the garden, we washed, trimmed, and peeled the fruit, tied each stem in a slipknot, then dipped the persimmons in boiling water for just a couple of seconds. By the time we finished, which took hours, more than 200 fruits swayed on a tall, rolling stand in the sunshine. But in my own home, the scene was less charming. A dozen strings suspended from my laundry rack threatened to topple if the breeze picked up. Every day, I carried the rack outside and put it in the sunshine on a clean mat in case it did topple, adjusting the persimmons so they wouldn't touch. As the days went by, I became more and more attached. Armed with a cotton swab dipped in alcohol, I inspected them for any off-putting spots of mold that might form where the fruits were starved of light or air. I didn't want to lose a single persimmon. My dogs picked up on the intensity of these vibes and became protective, lying by the fruit whenever I put it outside, guarding it from grabby squirrels and birds. A month of this process might seem like an eternity, but everything in the kitchen is running along in its own private time scale. The kimchi fizzing in the back of the fridge, the salted lemons slackening in their jars, the yogurt souring pleasantly. I'd be worried about committing to massaging the fruit every day, but this step wasn't as elaborate as the word suggested. I was not laying each fruit down and working on its teeny tiny knots. The massaging was much closer to an affectionate squeeze here and there, a gentle need, a friendly check-in. Dried didn't seem quite like the word either. After about three weeks, when the sugars bloomed on the surface, the fruits were much smaller than they were when they were fresh, but still substantial, thick, and wonderfully plump. <laughs> thick and wonderfully plump, tender to the touch. When I cut them open, they were a deep and glistening brown. Some tasted sweeter than others, but all of them had a rich, syrupy, almost floral flavor, a complicated and faintly alcoholic taste. I had meant to have them with some cheese or some fresh red walnuts, but every time I sliced one up, I just ate it like that, a little bit at a time, letting the honeyed scent fill my mouth, wondering if I would figure out how to describe it, and knowing I would go on through this process every year from now on, as long as my friends are willing to let me pick their persimmons from their trees. And if you go and look this up online, there's a, a recipe with the exact process on the creation of uh, hoshigaki. Uh, absolutely delicious. Wonderful in all kinds of things. Desserts, whatever. I mean, anywhere, uh, you know, it has the texture of like a dried mango, so think about that. Belongs on everything. Now here's a little bit of fun info from home. This is in uh, today's uh, January 5th news press local uh, paper of the area has, I should note, f uh, since the beginning of the year, had uh, a, like a typesetting error uh, next to the web address. For, I don't know how many people actually make this paper. I'm assuming probably not too many. But uh, they've left the same error on the paper since the beginning of the year where there's like hashtags basically and some code to like fill in something automatically like i don't know the service area of the paper or something maybe since this is probably like manufactured by one person making like four different versions of, of this paper like the naples daily news and stuff but anyway it's still there it's just a ha it's like literally computer code at the top of the paper it's very bizarre that nobody has caught it for a week now um mollusks by the numbers volunteers fan out to hold sanibel's First, count. Also, they spelled Sanibel wrong. It's S-A-N-I-B-E-L. 
and they spelt it on the front page of the newspaper. S-A-N-A-B-E-L. But I digress. This article is by Amy Bennett Williams, and we will not hold the misspelling of the headline to her because I assume that that is realistically the job of an editor or the person who does the layout. Or, I don't know, anyone, it's not her job. As a blustery, wet, cold front pushed towards Sanibel, things looked grim for the small army of volunteers ready to hit the beach before dawn. Troops were poised to fan out over 23 miles of sand for the islands, maybe the planets, first ever mollusk count. The idea to beachcomb in half-mile segments, counting every living clam, cockle, or conch they could see. Not only are the mineral-armored creatures a big part of Sanibel's claim to fame as a first-rate collector destination, over time, changes in their numbers can help diagnose the condition of the environment that surrounds them. The mollusks are sort of canaries in the coal mines, said Joyce Matthews, the 85-year-old Oregon snowbird who conceived and organized the count. At 6.15, a text came in from a team member. It is pouring and the wind is blowing. Ugh! But then Mother Nature smiled on General Mathis and her corps. The front dissipated, the sky cleared, and the deployment happened as planned at 7 a.m., though she's not exactly sure how many people counted. Some visiting grandchildren went with their grandparents, she said. So, you know, hard to keep track. I understand. I think that about 50 would be a good estimate. That's great. Almost a year in the making, the event may not have precedent in the malacological universe, but the concept is familiar to those in the world of ornithology, where for a century, Audubon's annual Christmas bird count has yielded long-term valuable data on the state of our feathered friends. Mathis is co-chair of the Sanibel Shell Show, (laughs) the planet's most venerable and almost the same age as she is. How about that? As she is brainstorming ways to celebrate the 85th annual Sanibel Shell Festival, held the first Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of March, Mathis came across a 1962 newspaper clipping about a shell count, quote, to see how many different species of shell could be found on Sanibel Island, she said. After their census, the story reports the volunteers converged on the island's community house to catalog the species over cookies and coffee. Though the article didn't say how many were recorded that year, another from the second year said they found 141 species. Mathis envisioned a similar event, but with a twist. She floated her idea in conversation with Bailey Matthews, National Shell Museum science director and curator, Jose Leal. What if we went out and tried to count all the live mollusks? She asked. Uh, bearing firmly in mind that such a count would be a one-day snapshot. Taken over time, however, such snapshots can provide valuable historic benchmarks, as Audubon's experience shows. Leal got on board, offering his expertise. We're going to give them some backup later with crunching the numbers, he said, and if they do that consistently year after year, it will be a great source of information. They chose the lowest tide of the season, January 3rd. Using Google Maps and the city's mile markers, Mathis diced the island into 23 half-mile segments and assigned a volunteer team to each. 
she had no trouble getting them all covered, some by family groups. For spots with no public access, she enlisted the help of nearby resorts to allow counters to park for free. Each team got a sector map, a six-inch ruler, and instructions to photograph and report any unknown or unusual shells for Leal to identify later. As for the months of effort her brainchild took, Mathis laughs. I'm pushing 86 really hard, and I'm thinking, am I getting Alzheimer's? You get an idea, and then you wonder, what have I got got myself into now? She laughs again. My friends always shudder when I say I have an idea. But now that she's done the trailblazing, people are ready, pl- already planning on making it an annual event. Thanks to Mathis, pioneering, pioneering labors, all the groundwork has been done, and all the documents have been made up, and all the forms, the directions, and where you're going to park, and all, she said. So I could pass to somebody else. The retired X-ray tech's labors of malacological love were born of her fascination with anatomy and physiology, which have sort of always been my thing, Mathis said. A retirement videography hobby yielded clips of live shells of such high quality that her mini documentaries are now shown in continuous loop at the Shell Museum. Now, that institution can use her research contributions as well. Almost, quote, almost every foot of Gulfside Beach on Sanibel covered, she said. The number of live mollusks counted by a single team ranged from two to over a thousand. Though some stretches are bare, others were littered with bivalves, two-piece, hinged shells like scallops and clams, uh, which greatly outnumbered the one-piece snail-like gastropods such as whelks and fighting conchs. Mathis attributes their attendance to the northwest wind washing them up on the beach overnight. Searchers also found an Atlantic pygmy octopus, one of the few mollusks with no shell, though the closely related squid and cuttlefish have a relic shell inside their bodies. An ancient Pacific octopus resides at the Shell Museum, affording visitors a close look in person and on its webcam. Its smaller, still-living cousin, found Monday, was placed in a pen shell and released. Though it may be a while before the final numbers are in, Mathis declares the event an over-the-top success in terms of both attendance and the fun factor. People really enjoyed participating, and everybody wants to do it again, she said, maybe more than once a year. Absolutely amazing. I love that. I love a good community story like that, and I love that it's happening uh, in a community near me. Here's a story that is, uh, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just begin. Yucca Mountain Battle Continues Biden Administration Opposed to Site But Needs Congress to Amend Law by Gary Martin of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And this is still in the news press. It's like a network story. Las Vegas. Mounting opposition to proposed nuclear waste storage sites in Texas and New Mexico have kept Yucca Mountain in Nevada the national debate over what to do with the growing stockpile of radioactive material scattered around the country. The Biden administration is opposed to the Yucca Mountain and announced plans this month to send waste to places where state, local, and tribal governments agree to accept it. The stance is shared by Nevada elected officials, tribal leaders, and businesses, and environmental groups. But until the 1987 Nuclear Waste Policy Act is changed by Congress, the proposed radioactive waste repository 90 miles north of Las Vegas remains the designated permanent storage site for spent fuel rods from commercial nuclear plants. 
That quote, that's what worries me. Until you get a policy in place, it will always be something that you have to watch. U.S. Representative Dina Titus, Democrat from Nevada, told the Las Vegas Review Journal. An expert on atomic testing in American politics, Titus, as a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, wrote a 1986 book on Nevada's nuclear past. As an elected state and congressional lawmaker, she has opposed a permanent storage facility at Yucca Mountain. Titus introduced legislation in past sessions of Congress that adopts recommendations by a 2012 Blue Ribbon Commission under the Obama administration to send the waste to sites that want it. Similar legislation has been filed in the Senate by Catherine Cortez Masto, Democrat of Nevada, a former state attorney general who has also fought federal efforts to build a repository at Yucca Mountain. The legislation has failed to pass as lawmakers from both parties who represent states with nuclear power plants seek a quick solution to waste disposal. I've always fought misguided efforts to deposit nuclear waste in Nevada, and I'll keep working with the Nevada delegation to pass my consent-based citing bill that would ensure these dangerous materials are never dumped on our state, Cortez Mastro said. Wastes piling up. The Biden administration has since proposed to fund interim storage in light of the 30-year stalemate over Yucca Mountain because of growing need to address stockpiles of radioactive waste at decommissioned and operating plants across the country. As of 2019, about 86,000 metric tons of spent nuclear fuel was being stored at 119 different sites, according to the Department of Energy. There are about 95 power plants operating in 29 states, currently generating 2,900 metric tons a year. And there are 38 reactors in 30 states in various stages of decommissioning. The waste is stored in casks, a former Energy Department advisor, Robert Alvarez, told an Environmental and Energy Study Institute briefing last year. The Government Accountability Office, the investigative arm of Congress, issued a report in September recommending storing the waste in places where local and state officials would agree to accept it. The reporting cited the dangerous characteristics of nuclear waste and need for safe disposal. Energy Secretary Jen Granholm announced this month that the department was seeking recommendations from states, cities, industry officials, and others on locations where officials were willing to accept spent fuel and materials. The plan announced by Granholm is expected to take up to two years to research and determine costs. The plan announced by the Department of Energy essentially restarts a process that began under the Obama administration with a recommendation from a Blue Ribbon Commission that suggested consent-based citing in quotes, with local input as the most effective way to develop storage sites. That did not occur in Nevada. Long history. Yucca Mountain was designated by Congress as the sole site for permanent storage in 1987 after other sites in Kansas, Tennessee, and Utah were rejected. Since that time, more than $15 billion has been sent on re spent on research and exploration at Yucca Mountain. Local opposition in Nevada, led by Democratic former Senator Harry Reid and other state elective officials, <laughs> elected officials, blocked development of the project until President George W. Bush directed the Department of Energy to seek a construction license from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The licensing process, however, was halted by President Barack Obama and by Reid, who was at the time state majority, or excuse me, Senate Majority Leader 
and pulled funding for the application. A federal court allowed funds already earmarked for licensing to continue to be spent. President Donald Trump's election brought a new push for licensing by Energy, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who, like Bush, was a former Texas governor. Despite political opposition from former Nevada Republican Governor Brian Sandoval and the entire state congressional delegation, the Trump administration pushed to develop Yucca Mountain. Perry repeatedly told Congress that he was following the 1987 law as he moved forward on licensing for nuclear storage at the designated Yucca Mountain site. But Trump later flip-flopped on Yucca Mountain as he sought re-election with Nevada as a part of his campaign strategy. After the election, the, the Biden administration budgeted funding for commercial operators to take control of some waste at interim sites. Reprocessing Waste The French have used recycled nuclear fuel since the 1970s with technology developed by the United States. The process was banned in 1977 in this country by President Jimmy Carter because of concerns about proliferation of nuclear weapons. Still, reprocessing waste is mentioned as an alternative or partial solution to address the problem by the Nuclear Energy Institute, the advocacy group for the industry. Some proponents see reprocessing as an economic carrot to entice storage. In Nevada, Nye County officials view storage alone as a potential economic boost to their jurisdiction, where Yucca Mountain is located, because it could have high-paying, it could draw high-paying jobs and local tax revenue. There are no current plans for spent nuclear fuel reprocessing plants under consideration in the United States. I didn't know that that was located in the same place that uh, Art Bell used to live and broadcast from. How about that? Old Pahrump, Nevada. Nevada. How are we supposed to say? My apologies to anyone in Nevada. I don't think there are anyone yet, so I'm fine. Okay. Covered the hot and ready. All right. Covered our persimmons. So, how about this? Prices of COVID-19 test kits to rise by Sharon Turlip. And this is in the business and finance section of the Wall Street Journal for today, Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. Prices are going up for some of the cheapest and most popular at-home COVID-19 tests in the U.S. Walmart Inc. and Kroger Co. are raising their prices for Binax Now at some rapid home Oh, at-home rapid tests after the expiration of a deal with the White House to sell the test kits at a cost, at cost, for $14. Wow. Oh, interesting. Didn't even hear about that. The two U.S. retail giants and Amazon.com agreed with the Biden administration last summer to discount the tests, which were made by Abbott Laboratories and generally cost $24 or more for a box with two tests. Binax Now, approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, is the most commonly used over-the-counter rapid antigen tests, which have been in high demand as the highly contagious Omicron variant spreads across the U.S. The deal with the White House expired in December, and Walmart said this week that it is raising the kit's price to $19.98 a box. 
Kroger now sells them for $23.99. The Binax Now tests aren't currently available on Amazon. Representatives for Walmart and Kroger said they fulfilled their commitment to sell the tests at cost for three months and are taking steps to make the tests more available. The White House didn't respond to a request for comment. An Amazon spokeswoman said the company is working with suppliers to alleviate shortages. She said Amazon made a large investment to develop its own FDA-approved PCR test. (laughs) She said Amazon made a large investment to develop its own FDA-approved PCR test, which sells for $39.99, lower than most similar tests. The effort, she said, involves setting up an in-house laboratory to process results. Pharmacy chains CVS Health Corp. and Walgreens Boots Alliance, Inc., along with other big retailers, have been selling the tests for $23.99 a box. Other retailers are charging even more. Even at the higher prices, tests are difficult to find. Binax Now is sold out in many major retailers' websites or takes more than a week to arrive. A Walmart spokeswoman said the Binax Now tests are I have proof I'm really reading a newspaper Uh, more readily available in physical stores Abbott said it is running plants around the clock seven days a week to pump out 70 million tests a month despite rising US material and labor costs we have not passed along any of these costs to our customers and the price at retail has not changed since we launched the test the company said COVID-19 tests both at-home kits and those done on location in clinics or at drugstores remain costly and difficult to find in many places such as the Omicron driven surge as the Omicron driven surge pushes many Americans to seek out the diagnostic tools The Biden administration has said it is working to expand access to free testing and has pledged to distribute 500 million free at-home tests. Some cities and states have established similar programs. The White House said in December that it would begin delivering at-home tests in January and that they would be available to the public free by mail through a new website. Officials haven't provided details of the plans to mail out tests or to cover the costs of testing. Uh, And I haven't heard anything about that recently, other than this update, which said that they hadn't heard anything recently. The cost and availability of the tests varies widely. Binax Now tests are hard to find online for $24, but can be purchased for twice the price. At-home PCR, and that also, I would say, uh, there was a story a couple days ago about these Binax Now tests where uh, someone on DoorDash or Uber Eats was selling, like, I don't know, a small $5, $10 meal, a bag of pretzels, or I don't know, like a basic thing, but packaging it with a pack of the Binax test. So like, I don't know, the two tests in the pack, maybe it was two of the packs. Either way, they were selling it with like a, like a, a cursory food item just to have it as an excuse to be sold over like DoorDash or Beats. I think it was DoorDash. And they're selling it for like $80, $84 maybe. Completely bizarre. I mean... I don't even know is this this isn't a black market because it's not illegal. It's not a gray market also because it's not illegal, but it's like a it's like a it's a secondary market. So sort of like eBay, which is also a thing. I guarantee those are probably an eBay too, but like you're you're talking about a secondary market for tests. So at what point does the secondary market demand create everything that secondary market demand creates, which is fraud. 
And I'll, I'll leave that question up to the world to answer. Um, let's see. The cost and availability of the test uh, varies wildly. Binax Now tests are hard to find online for $24, but can be purchased for twice the price. At-home PCR tests are more readily available, but generally cost close to $100 for a single test. Other rapid tests approved by the FDA for home use include the Elum COVID-19 home test and the QuickView test made by Kidel. Kidel? Doesn't matter. Free testing is generally offered at medical and community clinics and at retail pharmacies. In places where demand for testing is especially high, people face hours-long lines or scarce appointment slots. How much people pay for in-person tests varies based on a number of factors, including whether a person is insured, whether they are symptomatic, and how quickly they want results. When the prices are that high, people will rationalize not using a kit. They'll wait until they're sick or need it for school or something, said Eric Feigolding, an epidemiologist and health economist and a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based Federation of American Scientists. I'm sure is, a, of course, a very reputable group and not at all just another Washington think tank. The problem with this pricing, besides creating a lack of access, is that it creates a perverse incentive for people not to use them. Thank you. That sentence. So this man, this person, works at this think tank, pretty much to provide sentences like this to stories. And his assessment of the entire situation is this. The problem with this pricing, besides creating a lack of access, is that it creates a perverse incentive for people not to, to use them. How does anyone reading this article, who has the comprehension level required to read this article, not understand that already, you could have left that last whole paragraph with anything from him out of it, and it would have had the same effect on anyone reading it. And if anything, having someone from a Washington, D.C.-based think tank add some kind of requested commentary to your article, if anything, actually, in today's world, will remove... It adds a fog of uncertainty and unclarity to readers and viewers of media such as this, I think. But that's just me. All I know is if you say a DC, Washington, D.C.-based Federation of American Scientists and you want people to help you know, believe, you want to increase uh, credibility of credible information, that, I don't know if that's actually the answer. I don't. But that's just me. I also don't think that it takes a uh, whatever education that it takes to become an epidemiologist and health economist and a senior fellow at the Washington-based Wash, mm, the Federation of American Scientists to say that sentence. Because I could have said that sentence at the end of the article. Or you probably could have said that sentence, I guarantee. So, I don't know. I don't know. Here's another little uh, technology story on B4, same paper. Media firm co-founded by Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith to sell stake. It's by Benjamin Mullen and Miriam Gottfried. A firm led by two former Walt Disney Company executives has agreed to buy a stake in Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith's media company. People familiar with the matter said... 
the latest in a series of high-profile acquisitions for the Blackstone Inc.-based entertainment venture. The Blackstone-backed firm, which has yet to announce a name for itself and is run by former Disney executives Kevin Meyer and Tom Staggs, is paying about $60 million to acquire more than 10% of Westbrook, Inc., the people said. Founded in 2019, Westbrook's projects include King Richard, a biopic that chronicles the life of Richard Williams, the father of tennis stars Venus and Serena Williams. Other projects from Westbrook include French, <laughs> French Prince from Bel-Air. Yeah. Other projects from Westbrook include the French Prince of Bel-Air reunion on HBO Max, Red Table Talk, a show on Facebook Watch featuring Miss Pinkett Smith, her daughter Willow Smith, and her mother Adrienne Banfield Norris. The Westbrook deal is the latest in a series of acquisitions in recent months for Messrs. Meyer and Stagg's venture. In November, the firm said it was buying Moonbug Entertainment Limited, the company behind the hit children's shows Coco Melon and Blippi, for about $3 billion. In August, it said it was spending $900 million to acquire Hello Sunshine, the media company founded by Reese Witherspoon. Mr. Mayer said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal in August that he and Mr. Staggs were creating a new entertainment company for Hollywood's streaming era. Some media companies are reluctant to license shows and movies to rivals, Mr. Mayer said, creating an opportunity for a new independent player. One more thing on the uh, entertainment technology tip. Um... Lawsuit against Nirvana over Nevermind cover dismissed. This is by Joseph Pisani. Joseph Pisani. Oh, man. A California judge dismissed a lawsuit against rock group Nirvana from a man who alleged the band engaged in child pornography when a photo of him taken 30 years ago as a naked baby in a pool was used for the band's Nevermind album. The man, Spencer Eldon, now 30 years old, filed the lawsuit last year, asking the band's members and other defendants each to pay him $150,000 for taking the photo. Mr. Eldon was four months old in 1991 when the photo was taken in a pool, according to court documents. Mr. Eldon said he didn't consent to the photo, which has been printed on albums, t-shirts, and posters. The judge from the U.S. District Court for for the Central District of California, said in a document filed on Monday that the case was dismissed because Mr. Eldon didn't oppose a motion to dismiss the case by December deadline. He can still file an opposition by January 13th, the judge said. Robert Y. Lewis, Mr. Eldon's lawyer, said on Tuesday that it would be filed soon. We are confident that Spencer will be allowed to move forward with his case, said Mr. Lewis. The lawsuit was filed in August, against several defendants, including the band's members at the time, David Grohl and Chris Novoselic, and the estate of frontman Kurt Cobain, who died in 1994. A lawyer for the defendants declined to comment on Tuesday, because it's a totally bullshit case. In a document filed in December, Nirvana asked the judge to dismiss the case and said the statute of limitation for child pornography had passed, not to mention it's not child pornography and whatever. It also said that the child pornography allegations were quote, not serious. 
If they were, it said in court documents, millions of Americans who owned out the album or poster with the photo are guilty of felony possession of child pornography. The photo showed Mr. Eldon underwater, naked, and with a dollar on a hook in front of him. Ah, hmm. uh, yes. Here is something extra entertaining. A little more business news, but we'll, we'll get out of here soon enough. I think you'll appreciate this one. Evergrande ordered to tear down 39 buildings in luxury product. Now, uh, this is in, in China. I'm sure that they'll cover yeah they give enough backstory okay let me read away this is by Eniak Bao Aileen Yu the crisis engulfing China Evergrande Group deepened as the embattled property developer said it had ordered it had been ordered to tear down dozens of buildings on an extravagant man-made island in southern China, which I am looking at right now in the picture above the article, and you can look about online if you search for Ocean Flower Island. Uh, it's a series of extremely packed, what looks like Miami Beach condos, basically, um, but with little to no variation, and they are scrunched in inch for very inch, every single surface they could possibly cover has been covered with apartment building it it's it would be comical if it wasn't all going to be destroyed which is kind of already the comedy but i will continue the crisis engulfing china evergrande group deepened as the embattled property developer said it had been ordered to tear down dozens of buildings on an extravagant man-made island in southern china at the same time, Evergrande released data showing its much-publicized financial stress had largely halted sales of new homes, depriving it of an important source of cash. Contracted sales dwindled to about 720 million yuan, the equivalent of just $113 million between mid-October and year-end. The company's figures showed. The buildings were part of an ambitious project known as Ocean Flower Island, an artificial archipelago that the developer has compared to Dubai's Palm Jumeirah. Yeah, it does look like that. It's a very specific and arbitrary shape that seems to have been selected for aesthetic purposes and not uh, functionality or flow of water or erosion or whatever else might be necessary or uh, regularly required of... I don't know, hydrology? <laughs> I don't know what the word is for that, but all I know is some, some concerns were not taken into concern. <laughs> but it's very visually obvious. Uh, in a statement Tuesday, Evergrande confirmed the order to demolish 39 buildings. The notice issued by local authorities in the island province of Hainan along China's southern coast had previously circulated on social media and been covered by Chinese media. Authorities in Danzhou... A city in Hainan ordered a subsidiary of Evergrande to demolish the cluster of buildings, according to a notice dated December 30th. The notice said the developer had illegally obtained permits and ordered it to knock down the buildings within 10 days or face a forced demolition. Evergrande has 60 days to file a potential appeal. 
the company will actively communicate, quote, actively communicate with the authority in accordance with the guidance of the decision letter and resolve the issue properly. Evergrande said in a stock exchange filing. It stressed that the decision applied only to a single plot on one of its islets that makes up the Ocean Flower Archipelago. Danju's government said in a report last month that the Ocean Flower Island had harmed the marine environment, hmm, partly by causing mass damage to coral reefs. The city previously ordered the construction and pre-sales of the 39 buildings to stop in May 2020, according to a December 27th statement. Evergrande, which had amassed roughly $300 billion in liabilities as of June 30th, has been struggling to meet its obligations since the summer and to finish building homes that it has pre-sold to many home buyers. It has missed several interest payments on U.S. dollar bonds, including some that were due in December, and has been declared in default by major credit rating companies. Evergrande said Tuesday its contracted sales totaled the equivalent of $69.7 billion in 2021, a near 39% drop from a year earlier, and far below its full-year target. Contracted sales which reflect new contracts signed with home buyers are a widely watched industry measure. And it has been widely watched watching this situation in general, which I will expand slightly on since the article didn't fully cover it. Evergrande shares, which has had been halted Monday ahead of the company's statement rose 1.3% on Tuesday after trading resumed to 1.61 Hong Kong dollars per share or the equivalent of 13 cents. The stock fell 89% last year. Yeah. So the stock of this company did fall 89% last year, and it's basically due to the fact that the long and short of it is, like, imagine if uh, oversupply is oversupply. There was so much oversupply. There was an unprecedented amount of oversupply uh, in this company specifically, but at large in the market and as such, you know, 2020 happened, and that's kind of the explanation. Um, let's see. I think that's all we have in the uh, Wall Street Journal. Oh, except for this on the front page. WeWork co-founder snaps up apartments. Adam Newman, who built office co-working giant WeWork before resigning as chief executive when his fortune soured, has a new business venture underway. Apartment Landlord. This is by Conrad Putzier and Elliot Brown. Entities tied to Mr. Newman have been acquiring majority stakes in more than 4,000 apartments valued at more than $1 billion in Miami, Atlanta, Nashville, Tennessee, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and other U.S. cities, according to court property and corporate records, and people familiar with the transactions. Many of these investments occurred within the past year. Mr. Newman has told friends and associates of his ambitions to build a company that would shake up the rental housing industry, according to people familiar with the matter. Now, I would say that the rental housing industry is well shaken up at this moment and is in complete disarray and is currently causing many known and many unknown threads of discord throughout many neighborhoods in our society at large 
start with Airbnb and go down the list, but it provides a, as much a benefit as much as it does a complication, which is to say we'd be better off without it. But I digress. Exactly how he plans to accomplish this goal, Newman, uh, couldn't be learned, but his investments so far have largely been in traditional apartment buildings. Mr. Newman has said he wants to create a widely recognizable apartment brand stocked with amenities, according to a person who was part of these conversations. Mr. Newman's Nashville property, the 268-unit Stacks on Main, features a saltwater pool, a dog park, and valet trash pickup, according to the building's website. Mr. Newman is hoping to appeal to the same sort of young professionals he lured to hundreds of co-working office spaces when he was chief executive at WeWork. As I will dramatically flip the pages for a second as you think about what you heard about that. Remember that? Remember WeWork? If not, you're about to remember. People familiar with the matter said, his flexible office space was renowned for offerings such as free craft beer and fruit water. DJ Mauk, a partner in Mr. Neumann's family office. I'm just going to say his name randomly and say it wrong because what's the point of saying it correctly if I don't have any respect for anything that this, this dude is pulling off? Um, Since the spring of 2020, we have been excited about multifamily apartment living in vibrant cities where a new generation of young people increasingly are choosing to live, the kind of cities that are redefining the future of living. We are excited to play a role in that future. Mr. Neumann also has invested in a number of startups, according to a person familiar with the matter. Mr. Neumann co-founded WeWork in 2010 and raised more than $10 billion for a business once valued at $47 billion, persuading investors to value it as a tech company despite its real estate roots. He also launched We Live, the sequel to They Live, and planned as a network of buildings where people can rent rooms in shared furnished apartments. The company opened apartment buildings in New York and Virginia, but we were closed, we live, after Mr. Newman's departure. The 42-year-old entrepreneur left the company in late 2019 after plans for initial public offering of stock fell through amid concerns over his management style and heavy losses. WeWork, now publicly traded, has a market capitalization of about $7 billion. That valuation is more in line with real estate companies than fast-growing technology companies. Mr. Neumann began rich working at WeWork and is using his own funds toward buying stakes in the apartment buildings, according to a person familiar with the matter. When Mr. Neumann served as CEO, his and his co- he and his co-founder sold a total of more than $500 million of WeWork stock, largely at higher share prices than today, according to documents and people familiar with the sales. To encourage Mr. N., to give up his control of the company, WeWork majority owner SoftBank Group Corp paid him nearly $200 million for consulting, quote, consulting, and quoting the article, and other fees, and bought $578 million of shares from him, according to WeWork Securities filings. It is pretty dope when your company wants to buy you out for over half a billion dollars because they think that you're ruining the company. Uh, 
the sector has experienced rising investor interest since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in the booming Sun Belt. And let me tell you, business is booming. Rents are surging in many cities alongside rising household incomes and rising shortages that analysts said are unlikely to disappear soon. Cities such as Nashville and Miami are also attracting people moving from the Northeast in search of warmer weather, less costly housing, and lower taxes. In 2020, Mr. Neumann acquired a major stake in Alfred Club, Inc., a company that provides concierge services such as picking, off, picking up and dropping off groceries and laundry in residential buildings. His real estate holdings, which include two apartment buildings in Atlanta, are mostly recently built properties with more than 200 units and lots of common amenities. In Fort Lauderdale, an entity tied to Mr. Newman owns Society Las Olas, according to court records. The 639-unit apartment building includes a co-working space, a putting green, and a barbershop, according to the developer's website. In downtown Miami, Mr. Neumann recently signed a contract to buy a majority stake in the 444-unit Cowba Apartment Tower, valuing the property at about $200 million, according to a person familiar with the matter. An entity tied to Mr. Neumann also owns the nearby 387-unit Yard 8 apartment building court records show. Mr. Newman has also invested in suburban apartments where demand has grown as remote workers leave crowded city centers in search of more space. He holds stake in a building in Decatur, Georgia, according to a public records. And another in Norwalk, Connecticut. A person familiar with the matter said. So this dude's going old school and he's breaking the number one rule of Hollywood and business and using your own money to make some insane investments. And I say, do go for it. Fuck up your fortune. Totally rad. I mean, awesome. This is like the best payback you could ever get. I mean, if everything I believe to be in the future will come to pass, as it will. At least when it comes to the real estate market. But he'll probably figure out some way to bail himself out. Either way, he's set for life. But here's something that's not set for life. Blackberry diehards struggle with final blow. Fans part with classic devices or turn them into art. I'm actually pretty sad. It's, it's in the subtitle. I never owned a Blackberry, but I know many people were very attached to them. This is by Joseph Pisani. I'm covering another Jay Pisani article. Andrew Balfour, long dreaded January 4th, 2022, the day he had to say goodbye to his beloved BlackBerry Classic forever. Older BlackBerry models, like Mr. Balfour's, stopped working on Tuesday, turning the once ubiquitous phones to nothing more than glorified paperweights. Now, the, hardy, the hardiest of BlackBerry diehards who clung to the final moment of service are finally having to let go. Sort of. Some are refusing to give up their non-functioning gadgets and turning them into alarm clocks or art. Fans knew this was coming. BlackBerry announced the date more than a year ago. Only BlackBerry phones running on Android software like the old, uh, like the nearly four-year-old Key 2 will continue working. Even though Mr. Balfour's BlackBerry couldn't summon an Uber or stream a Netflix show, it could last days without needing a charge, and typing emails on its keyboard was a breeze. He brought a BlackBerry Key 2 last week 
oh, he bought one last week, but waited until the last minute to upgrade. It's, I'm actually pretty sad, said the 42-year-old from Ottawa. I don't fully understand what they need, why they need to get rid of it. He keeps five or six old, oh boy. Of course he doesn't understand why they need to get rid of it. He still owns five or six blackberries. Okay. He owns five or six blackberries from the past 20 years, and he has them stashed in a desk drawer. Claude Millman adored his BlackBerry phones so much, two of them now hang in a frame in his New Jersey lake house. He had to break up with BlackBerry in 2019 when his phone died and he couldn't find a replacement. The curvature of the keyboard was addicting, he said, and allowed the New York civil litigator to write affidavits or long emails with ease. At a hotel lobby in Paris recently, he spotted a BlackBerry in someone's hands. It was kind of exciting to see, said Mr. Millman, 58. I wanted to reach out and touch it. The BlackBerry, once cutting-edge technology that allowed executives, world leaders, and reality TV stars to send emails from the palm of their hand for the first time, is near death. BlackBerry Limited said in September 2020 that it would eventually pull the plug, making the phones unable to make calls, send texts, or even dial 911. It is part of BlackBerry's shift from making phones to selling security software to corporations and governments. The company said it would have cut service sooner, but the 16-month notice was an expression of thanks to loyal users. It's unclear how many people were still using an older BlackBerry. The company didn't respond to a request for comment, and neither did major carriers AT&T, T-Mobile, or Verizon Wireless. So they're apparently more than ready to just let this thing die. First launched as a text pager in 1996 by Canadian company Research in Motion Limited, also known as RIM, uh, on the market. A BlackBerry phone came a couple years later. It started to look outdated in 2007 when Apple Inc. released the touchscreen iPhone. Android smartphones soon came after. BlackBerry handset sales peaked at 52.3 million in 2011 before swiftly declining. But fans who liked the feel of the physical button keyboards kept the BlackBerry alive. Former President Barack Obama, who used a BlackBerry while campaigning, kept using it until at least 2016, his last year in office. Reality TV star Kim Kardashian gave it up in 2016 when her BlackBerry Bold died and she couldn't find a replacement on eBay. Reality is starting to set in and I'm getting sad, she tweeted at the time. Carrie Bradshaw is still clinging to a BlackBerry. The fictional character, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, is seen texting on one in the Sex and the City reboot that made its debut last month on the HBO on HBO Max and takes place in the present day. So, okay. <laughs> Write that in. Former BlackBerry CEO Jim Balsilli was so attached to the phone that after he resigned from the company in 2012, he told a Toronto audience, you'll have to pry it out of my cold, dead hands. Mr. Balsilli decided three years ago to switch his BlackBerry for an Android phone with a licensed BlackBerry keyboard because he said it offered superior phone security. It also offered a hub of BlackBerry software and services such as texting, email, calendars, and tasks. The sad day for me will be when they kill the hub, and I'm not kidding myself. That might happen, he said Monday. BlackBerry didn't respond to requests for comment. Dwayne Bratt fears that day will come soon. The political science professor from Calgary, Canada, uses a key too, but worries there 
won't be any future phones to replace it with. I've tried to resist the Apple cult, but it's getting harder, said Mr. Bratt, 54. Carol Miller of London has found another use for a touchscreen BlackBerry she had to stop using about a year ago, an alarm clock. There's no chance of it ringing in the middle of the night with a call, she said, although Mrs. Miller wishes she could still use it as a phone. Such a shame, all this, said Ms. Miller, 54. For me, they were the best phones. <laughs> End quote. In a blog post Tuesday, BlackBerry CEO John Chen said that it was the end of an era and the company has shifted into new areas. Letting go of the past is always bittersweet, even when a brighter future awaits, he said. We have been holding off on decommissioning the BlackBerry service out of loyalty to our customers for a long time, he said. And uh, Jackie McNish contributed to this article. Cool. I believe that is it for the uh, that paper. And I have one more thing lined up. One more little item here. Let's see. What was it? Um, even letting you stick with me this time. Okay. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Oh, boy. Okay. A little something about the movies. Take us out. Who doesn't love the movies? Everyone loves the movies. So this is a little article by the USA Today. I'll just give... Uh, Credit to those who are involved. Melissa Ruggieri, Gary Levin, Brian Alexander, Patrick Ryan, Barbara Van Denberg, and Andrea Mandel. So we know who to blame when these things become popular or uh, not. Uh, Elton John gets back to saying goodbye. This is going to be really fun to go through very quickly. The long and winding farewell Yellow Brick Road tour has encountered numerous zigzags and delays thanks to coronavirus, but John, who ambitiously crafted an album of duets, the lockdown sessions during the early days of the pandemic, is prepped to return to his swan song outing, which launches January 19th in New Orleans and will snake through the U.S., Europe, and New Zealand. Can we please let this man say farewell uninterrupted this time, Melissa Ruggieri? You're killing me. Adele makes herself at home in Las Vegas. I'd like to know actually why we have 21 things for 2022. I mean, you could have just done 22 things, I suppose, but here we go. Adele makes herself at home in Las Vegas. Between the breathless hype and the exorbitantly priced tickets on the resale market following an instant sellout, yes, some seats are going for thousands of dollars. One might think of the Queen herself as heading to the Coliseum at Caesars Palace for January 21st to April 16th weekend as a residency, but it is merely British singing, songwriting royalty, a transformational vocal talent who has the clout to insist that fans pack their suitcases and come to her. It's also by Ruggieri. Olivia Rodrigo hits the road. The breakout performer of 2021, the Disney teen-turned-confessional punk pop songstress, 
will prove she's more than a manufactured melody maker with her first world tour, April 2nd to July 7th. Shaping up to be a potent year for the 18-year-old behind Zingy Hits' Good For You, Deja Vu, and the sweeping driver's license. She also nominated for seven Grammy Awards this month. Genius, a Kanye trilogy. For more than 20 years, Cootie and Chike, film directors and longtime friends of the mercurial rapper now known as Ye, have tracked West's career. From rapping with Most Deaf in 2002 to the death of his beloved mother, Donda, the namesake of his oft-retooled album, in 2007, to his failed 2020 presidential bid. <laughs> oh, buddy. The Netflix film is expected to be released in three parts. A new Missy Elliott album. So far, we have only a tweet, but it's a noteworthy tweet and a tweet that it, the eternally super-duper fly Maven has endorsed. So we are going with that. In early December, longtime Elliott collaborator Timbaland sparked a frenzy on social media when he tweeted, Who ready for that Missy Elliott Timbo album? Elliott responded with a gif of herself grooving and emojis of clapping hands and tornadoes, indications that the dynamic duo is indeed fashioning what will be Elliott's first album since 2005's The Cookbook. And if you know her road since 2005's The Cookbook, you know that she has been on a long road and that she deserves this more than maybe anyone. She, she's been, she deserves this. She deserves this comeback to be fucking bodacious. That's what she deserves. And it, it should be. TV's The Lord of the Rings. Amazon Prime Video's lavish adaptation, launching September 2nd of J.R.R. Tolkien's classic novel series, promises familiar and new characters confronting the reemergence of evil to Middle-earth. It's the most expensive TV show ever made with a reported first season budget of $465 million. A second is already planned along with a related content sure to satisfy fans of the books and Peter Jackson's Peter Jackson's 2001 to 2003 movie trilogy. I've kind of cut myself out of the loop for film and TV news for up until about 2 months ago, 18 months before that and I don't know how that went completely past me. That was by Gary Levin. House of the Dragon. Roughly three years after HBO's biggest hit, fantasy epic Game of Thrones wrapped its eight-season run, the first of several potential spinoffs finally arrives. House focuses on the story of the rise and reign of the Targaryen family as rulers of the mythical Westeros. It's set 200 years before the original series, so don't look for any returning cast members, but Matt Smith says The Crown, Doctor Who, oh, Matt Smith, yeah, plays Prince Daemon Targaryen, which is great. How about that? I wonder how that'll play after uh, a Lord of the Rings TV show that's that over that, you know, by the time it's marketed and everything will over half a billion dollars will be spent on it. I don't even know what can compare with that. I mean, that see that thing right there. Amazon was smart by commissioning and saying, like, take all the money that we're going to you're ever going to need for this because it's going to stand the test of time. People, if it's Lord of the Rings, people are going to watch it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. 
um, were willing to put forth the half a billion dollars needed to make the TV series, make a TV series around Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, someone thought ahead. I mean, if you're going to do the math now, it would be a lot easier to see because, of course, you know, you have uh, Squid Game, for example. Squid Game costs what, like a hundred and it wasn't that much. Maybe it was like 50-something. It wasn't that much. It was maybe like, I don't know. It was under 100 million bucks is basically my thought process. Squid Game was not very expensive to make. Um, I mean, how many sets did it have? Uh, But if you look at the profitability of that, they're saying Netflix claims that they made over $900 million or will see over $900 million in profit from Squid Game alone. If you do the math and that Squid Game, which was, you know, before it came out, unknown, and you apply the math of something like that, and you know you're going to make a successful series that people are going to connect to, it's going to have original elements. In this case, you're attaching it to a majorly successful franchise. That thing's going to knock everything out of the water. Forget Foundation. Forget all these things that people were, like, clowning around with. Um, And honestly, forget a lot of the Disney series uh, in terms of, budget production you're gonna make the disney marvel series look like the netflix marvel series with amazon uh, amazon's uh, lord of the Rings series based on the amount of money that they have or at least that's their plan based on the amount of money that they have that's their strategy here you don't spend half a billion dollars on one season of a television show um and then green light a second one already without anyone having even even like given critical reviews of it unless you are basically like you know you have a guaranteed hit and you know you have a guaranteed hit because you spent every dollar it would take to make a guaranteed hit. So look out for that. House of the Dragon? Don't know. Not, not, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Obi-Wan Kenobi up next. Among several current or planned Star Wars spinoffs on Disney+, Plus, The Mandalorian, The Book of Boba Fett, The Reunion of Obi-Wan, Ewan McGregor, and Darth Vader, Hayden Christensen, seems like a slam dunk for fans of the franchise. The series, long delayed for script polishing, is set years before the first Star Wars film. The first Star Wars film? Really? Which one? Like, okay. I'm sorry. Sorry for that one. Halo, one of TV's longest gestating projects. Yeah, that I means literally this has been in production since I believe 2006 or seven. I mean, realistically, the original version of this project was a short film made by the guy who directed District 9, who I am going to look up. Um, it kind of sucks. Um, Neil Blomkamp. Neil Blomkamp was handed the contract to make a short, the original live-action short for Halo. This was uh, for the promotional wind-up for Halo 3. And then shortly thereafter, he was greenlit to develop a Halo series. That never happened. And then it was passed on to some other studio. And then it was passed on to, I believe... Uh, even Steven Spielberg was attached to it at some point. And then now it, let's see where it's sitting now. It's part of Showtime. Damn, this is even more convoluted than I thought. 
One of TV's longest gestating projects, the series based on the hit Xbox game uh, 20, base centers on a 26th century conflict with an alien force known as the Covenant and stars Pablo Schreiber as Master Chief Petty Officer John 117. Master Chief. Halo was first announced in 2013 for Microsoft's then-planned video platform, which ne- went nowhere. It never even came to fruition. And before that, honestly, they were talking of the Zune video platform was the, I believe, purpose of the promotional creation of the series that they were making after the short for Halo 3, which once again never came to light. Um, It says that the series was initially planned for Showtime after it was not going to be made for Microsoft's video platform that does not exist, and now is finally coming home on Paramount+. Plus. All I'm going to say is a Halo property I (laughs) this seems like an echo of the video game projects that were coming out when this project was initially developed and there's no way that it was handed around this much unless (laughs) I feel like it's just being like let off the shelf I feel like they're just letting it go but uh, we'll see inventing Anna Julia Garner, Ozark, plays the Russian scam artist who posed as New York socialite Anna Delvey in this New York series adapted by Shonda Rhimes, Grey's Anatomy, from a New York Magazine article. Anna, streaming February 11th, is notable as the first series Rhimes has created and written since ABC's Scandal in 2012, although Bridgerton, which she produced, was a breakout hit in 2020. The Knives Out sequel. Director Ryan Johnson planning not one but two Knives Out sequel for ne- sequels for Netflix, and the photos that leaked from the international shoot this summer are criminally good. What we know. The first installment is expected in summer. Daniel Craig is back as private detective Benoit Blanc, this time solving a fresh mystery involving Dave Batista, Jeanelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, and Leslie Odom Jr., and Kate Hudson. Glam photos leaked from Greece in June, where the production commenced production. <laughs> and we're off, tweeted Johnson at the time. Thanks to all the lovely patient people who are here in Greece letting us do all this murdering on their peaceful shores. By Andrea Mandel. Black Panther. Wakanda Forever. Writer-director Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, release date currently November 11th. The follow-up to Marvel's 2018 culture-changing smash hit, Black Panther, takes on an even greater significance following the death of beloved leading man Chadwick Boseman. Rest in peace. How the burgeoning franchise will carry on after losing its title character is the movie's most searingly compelling secret. Marvel has said Bozeman's role won't be recast, and the new film will honor Bozeman and the legacy he helped create. Wakanda Forever has been a hit with the production delays, but has been slated for the prime November slot. I think uh, even if you haven't been paying attention to the Marvel Universe recently, you probably know where that story is going to go. Not to mention that Angle's already been approached in the comics. This isn't a new development. All right. Avatar 2. James Cameron first revealed the wonders of the mysterious exoplanet Pandora in 2009's Avatar, nearly $3 billion in the box office, and more than a decade later... In fact, I'm surprised. Nearly $3 billion in the box office. I thought they re-released it in China recently to 
get it over the $3 billion mark. Um, maybe that hasn't happened yet. Uh, nearly $3 billion in the box office, and more than a decade later, Cameron is finally ready to return viewers to his world and beyond, bringing back former Marine Jake Sully, Sam Worthington. I guess Sam Worthington has pretty much just been working on this ever since, which, uh, where that hell has he been <laughs> who found a home with navi princess nitiri zoe saldana and her clan at the end of the first movie it's not going to be a pleasure trip avatar 2 december 16th shot in conjunction with avatar 3 december 20th 2024 and december or avatar 4 which is like two years after that and then there's avatar 5 which is supposedly an element of production which could be after that at some point so uh yeah look forward to december 16th 2022 if you'd like to see avatar 2 and see new perils and the return of past foes such as colonel miles Carich, stephen lang who died at the end of the first film big explanations and wondrous new worlds await if Stephen Lang is not a protagonist in that next movie, they fucked up. That was by Alexander. Top Gun Maverick. We've had the need for speed. Well, it seems like forever now. Tom Cruise's long-anticipated return to the cockpit has been sitting on the flight deck for two years after production and COVID-19 delays, but Paramount has released intoxicating trailers of director Jovis... <laughs> Joseph Kaczynski's sequel, May 27th, with Cruz's Pete Maverick Mitchell, now a still rebellious Top Gun flight instructor. We strongly urge viewers not to sip hot coffee when the jets start screaming across the big screen. Weird editorializing. Maverick will see the return of original frenemy Tom Iceman Kazansky, Val Kilmer, and bring new faces such as Bradley, Rooster Bradshaw, Miles Teller, the son of dearly departed R.I.O. Nick Goose Bradshaw, Anthony Edwards. Hmm. Also by Alexander. Bros, next year looks sensational for queer moviegoers from Jim Joel Kim Booster's Pride and Prejudice. Next year? No, this... Okay, so this person wrote this last year. They just revealed that to us. Uh, this year looks sensational for queer moviegoers from Joel Kim Booster's Pride and Prejudice inspired Fire Island. That sounds great. To the feature directorial debuts of Billy Porter. What if? And Tig Notaro. Am I okay? Oh, that'll be great. Um, one of the most high-profile projects is Rom-Com Bros, August 12th, co-written by and starring Billy on the Street, Funny Man Billy Eichner in what is being touted as the first major studio film with an all-LGBT principal cast, Hollywood, get ready for Bowen Yang, Saturday Night Live, and Simone, RuPaul's Drag Race, Patrick Ryan. Uh, don't worry, darling. First-time director Olivia Wilde made one of the most magnificent comedies in, in years with 2019's Booksmart. Fuck, I can't believe I haven't seen that. Now she's back behind the camera and doing a total 180 with an erotic thriller, September 23rd, about a 1950s housewife, Florence 
too. In a utopian community whose life begins to unravel, Pew knows a thing or two about psychological horror from her staggering performance in Midsummer. And here, she's matched with a singer-turned-actor, Harry Styles, whose rumored romance with Wilde behind the scenes only stokes curiosity around this movie. Prince Harry's Memoir If a mere Oprah Winfrey interview set the internet and the royal family's hair on fire, what's an entire book going to do? Prince Harry will, quote, Prince Harry will share for the very first time the definitive account of the experiences, adventures, losses, and life lessons that have helped shape him, end quote. Publisher Random House announced earlier this year, details on the Duke of Sussex's memoir are slim. There's no title or release date yet, but he's not been shy about critiquing the royal family and his treatment of his wife, Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, since the two gave up royal duties and have moved to the U.S., but they have not given up their royal titles they seem to want to keep those titles as if it actually well whatever comedy 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 drama by bob odenkirk the beloved star of better call saul and mr show opens up in his memoir about his journey from cult comedy writer to dramatic actor and action film star revisiting the highs and lows of show business this book out march 1st would have been welcome news no matter what, but it's especially sweet following Odenkirk's recovery from a scary July heart attack that saw the star collapse on set. We'll take all the Odenkirk we can get. That's by Van Denberg. Uh, Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. Some books hit so hard the emotional bruise they leave stays tender for years, such as the case with Fowler's 2013 Marvel. We are all completely beside ourselves. Winner of the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, Booth, March 8th. Her first novel since is about the family behind one of American history's most notorious figures, John Wilkes Booth, the snapshot of a troubled family in a country in its own throes of change, promises difficult insights into our current moment. I struggled to use my imagination to, like, what is the construct of that book? Fascinating. Interested to hear the review. The Candy House by Jennifer Egan. By the time this comes out, it will have already been nearly 12 years since Egan's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, was hailed as a postmodern masterpiece. Egan's forthcoming The Candy House, April 5th, is a sibling, to no a sibling novel to Goon Squad in which tech guru Bix Baton creates Own Your, Unco Un Own Your Unconscious, a technology that allows users to access and share every memory they've ever had. It's a concept, concept so killer, it's hard to believe such technology does not already exist. I would say that that concept has already been completely mined by the episode of Black Mirror, where they do literally what that dis described in that box. I would also say that the world of sci-fi is so incredibly stepped on by technology stories right now that I am intensely uninterested in any story that has anything to do with like technology taking over and destroying us. One, we get that. Two, it was covered at length, in a more interesting way, when it was still fiction 20 years ago. Like, uh, <laughs> the dangers of the technologies that are presented to us today were already predicted well ahead of time in fiction and, uh, honestly, outside of fiction. And the books that are created today 
are saying literally the same things as those ones that were written 20 or 30 years ago, but now they, you know, use a meme that you might reference now. Like it's fiction is 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 getting dire. Finding Me by Viola Davis. Any debate about our greatest living actress that doesn't include Davis isn't to be taken seriously. The Oscar, Emmy, and Tony Award-winning thespian of Fences, The Help, How to Get Away with Murder, is a creative powerhouse, but just as impressive is her story, April 26, of overcoming childhood poverty and dysfunction to become one of the most celebrated artists of her generation. I believe that our stories and the courage to share them is the most powerful empathetic tool that we have. I would agree. It's quite a powerful statement. Davis said in a statement shared with the Associated Press. And that was by Van Denberg. So there you go. That's what the USA Today is excited about in 2022. And I, I did see uh, a similar article like that in the New York Times, but their list was uh, predictable and um, less interesting. So that's all for today. I do hope that you enjoy the show. I do ask for a few things. I do ask that you call 505-557-7932 if you would like to uh, communicate with the show. I will not be checking any other thing. And uh, you can look me up on Twitter. My name is Don Johnson. You can find me. I'm the only one. I'm the only Don Johnson in the world. Don't let you uh, let yourself be confused by anyone else who might make a contrary statement. Um, it's just me. And once again, if uh, you want to support the podcast, yeah, just tell your friend and uh, donate to your local food bank. We will be back with another episode very soon. I'd say if today is uh, Wednesday, then I will be back on um, Friday. Yeah.